Now, if your Bible falls naturally open to John, I understand why, uh, but we're going to start a new book, and that is Colossians, and there should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed and uh, audio messages on the church website, and there are printed messages here this morning. If you want to get up and grab one, feel free to do that. This morning I'm going to do an overview of the book, and so we'll be looking at a lot of verses through the message, but then we'll come back to verses 1 and 2, which I want to read at this time. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. If you have a King James, it adds, and the Lord Jesus Christ, but that is not in the earlier manuscripts and probably was added. Many of you know Garrison Keeler, who's on the radio every Saturday, and he's uh, kind of made a career out of his monologues about the fictitious town of uh, in Minnesota, Lake Wobegon. It's the little town that time forgot, and the decades can't improve. It's the town where all the women are strong, and all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. Uh, He says in Lake Wobegon, in the summertime, people lock their cars, not because they're afraid of their car getting stolen, but they're afraid that somebody will come by and throw zucchini from their garden into the front seat. Uh, So that's a small town. And over the years, I've read a few other small town characteristics. Uh, It's a small town when you don't have to use your turn signal because everyone knows where you're going. Or it's a, it's a small town when you can't walk for exercise because everyone stops to offer you a ride. Or it's a small town when people know the news before the paper comes out, but they take the paper anyway to make sure the editor got the story right. Well, Flagstaff is no longer a small town. It was when I first came here in 1963 as a teenager. We came to a Bible conference up at you know, the base of Mount Eldon, and back then it was a small town, but now we're up to about 75,000 people. But we are surrounded by small towns. Maybe you've driven through them as you leave town, Seligman and Ash Fork, uh, Ash Fork and Seligman in that order as you drive west, uh, Winslow to the east, Tuba City out to the northeast. And I mentioned small towns because... The city of Colossae was a small town. It was about 100 miles east of Ephesus, which was a large city. Uh, It's in modern Turkey. It was about 10 miles from Laodicea, about 13 miles from Hierapolis, which was another city there where there was a church. Uh, One time, Colossae had been a fairly important town, but kind of like maybe Seligman, The main trade route had moved, and now the town was bypassed, and the trade route went into Laodicea. And so by Paul's day, its importance had dwindled. It was made up mostly of Gentiles, but one of the early historians says there was a large influx of Jewish population there a couple of centuries before uh, Paul wrote to it. 
Bishop Lightfoot, who was a uh, renowned scholar of the 19th century, wrote, Without doubt, Colossae was the least important uh, church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. So it would be in our day like Paul wrote the letter to the church of Seligman. And you would go, hey, what? (laughs) Why Seligman? I mean, why a little dinky town like that? What's the significance of that? And so you have to ask, well, why would Paul write this letter to the church in Colossae? And the answer is, I think, that this small town church had some big time doctrinal threats to its well-being. And we can be thankful for those problems because we get the letter to the Colossians, and it is the letter in which Paul exalts both the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ more than in any other of his writings as he counters these false teachers. And we learn in Colossians 2.1 that Paul had not yet visited this little city. The church there had been planted by this man named Epaphras. Um, he was probably converted and discipled during the three years that Paul stayed in Ephesus and had the school of Tyrannus there where he was equipping men and sending them out. And we read there that All of Asia was reached with the gospel as a result of Paul's labors in Ephesus there uh, through different men. Epaphras was a native of Colossae, and he went back and planted church, the church there, probably also in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Uh, Colossae was, um, or the, the church in Colossae was meeting in the home of a man named Philemon. And you know that little New Testament letter because Philemon had a runaway slave named Onesimus who made his way to Rome. In the providence of God, he met the Apostle Paul, and through Paul, he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote that little letter of Philemon and urged him to receive back his runaway slave. And and then that could have merited the death penalty, by the way. Paul asked that he would receive him back no longer as a slave, but now as a brother in Christ. The church in Colossae, however, was being plagued by these false teachers. Epaphras was puzzled as to how to counter this, and so he made the journey to Rome. He found Paul, according to Acts 28, Paul was under house arrest in his own rented quarters in Rome. And he shared the problems with Paul. In turn, Paul then wrote this letter of Colossians. He probably expanded it to write Ephesians based on the same general material. Because as you compare the two letters, there's much overlap in content. The structure of them is basically the same, except Ephesians is expanded. There's a different emphasis, though, in that in Colossians, the emphasis is on Christ and his supremacy as the head of the church, whereas in Ephesians, the emphasis is more on the church as the body of which Christ is the head. Uh, Colossians, of course, is more focused in dealing with this doctrinal problem that existed, and Ephesians is more general. 
Some scholars think that Ephesians was a circular letter because some of the earlier manuscripts lack to the Ephesians at the start of the letter. And they think that it was a general letter that was circulated among a number of churches in Asia Minor. And if that's the case, it could be the letter that is coming from Laodicea that Paul said, I want you to read in Colossians 4.16. If it's not, then we're missing one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, in the providence of God. It was not included in the canon of the New Testament, but it could be the letter to the Ephesians. So Paul wrote Colossians, he wrote Ephesians, he wrote Philemon, and then he sent these letters back with a man named Tychicus, Tychicus, however you say it, and Epaphras stayed with him in Rome. Now, what was the false teaching that was in Colossae? That is the big question, because uh, it is difficult to figure out exactly what was the nature of this false teaching. In the past two centuries, scholars have come up with at least 44 different answers to that question. So you can see it's a complicated matter. We have Colossians, and so it's kind of like if you've ever listened to someone talking on the phone, you can sort of get the gist of what the other person on the other end is saying, but you really don't know. You have to piece it together by, oh, he said that, they must have said this kind of uh, information. But probably, like most false teaching, it was a blend of several different errors, Uh, First of all, there was a strong Jewish ascetic element. Asceticism is the teaching that you achieve holiness by denying yourself certain basic comforts in life. And so, you know, the ascetics join monasteries and wear uncomfortable clothing and deny themselves good food and sleep and uh, warmth and all those other things, thinking that it's going to gain them spiritually. And these false teachers were emphasizing circumcision, dietary, ceremonial laws, the observance of holy days. And so, in essence, it's legalistic. It says, if you do these things, you will become holy. If you don't do these things, you will become holy. That kind of an approach. And we'll look at that when we get into chapter 2. Also, the false teachers were promising their followers deeper wisdom and knowledge. Um, Some of the uh, earlier commentators say it was an early form of Gnosticism, but most recent commentators uh, say Gnosticism had not yet emerged as a false system. But Paul counters this by saying in Colossians 2-3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, The false teachers also were probably promising people, you'll experience fullness if you follow our teachings. And Paul counters that by asserting that the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ in bodily form, and that in him, he says in Colossians 2.10, you have been made complete. In other words, if you're complete, you don't need more fullness. You are full. Of Jesus Christ. Another part of their error is that the false teachers were emphasizing the role of angels in an 
unbiblical manner. Now, the Bible, of course, teaches from early on the fact that there are angels, both righteous and fallen angels, uh, and their importance. But the false teachers were saying, we need to worship the angels. Uh, we, we need to do that because we've had a vision and seen that that's what we should do. And so Paul counters that by showing that Jesus Christ created all angelic beings for his purpose and his glory, that he reigns over all of them, including even the fallen angels, and thus we should worship him and not any angels. So like most false teachings, the, the Colossian heretics were taking an element from here, an element from there, of various kinds of teachings from religious and philosophical and cultural views, and throwing them all in the hopper together. Douglas Moo, one modern scholar, concludes this. He says, the false teachers were probably people from within the Colossian Christian community. It's often how Satan does it. They're not outsiders, they're insiders. And they were bragging about their ability to find ultimate spiritual fulfillment via their own program of visions and asceticism. The program was drawn partly from Judaism, partly from its focus on rules about eating and observing certain days. They were preoccupied with spiritual beings, probably because they viewed them as powerful figures capable of having significant influence over their lives. Then he adds, the false teachers were appealing to spiritual beings, visions, and rules to find security in this very uncertain universe. In doing so, he says, they were questioning the sufficiency of Christ. And so that will be a main theme of Colossians is that Christ is sufficient for us as we face issues in this world. And so Paul's corrective then is to proclaim both the supremacy of Christ as Lord over all, the sufficiency of Christ for all. If you want to outline the book um, just easily, two broad sections, same as Ephesians. Here it's chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 1 and 2 are the polemical section. That means they're arguing against the false teachers primarily. Um, Paul is showing that Christ is preeminent. And then there is the practical section, not that the polemical is impractical. It certainly is practical. But then Paul applies in chapters 3 and 4 how Christ's preeminence is going to affect us primarily in the area of relationships. Um, And then chapter 4 has an unusually long section of personal uh, items from verse 4 to the end of the, or verse 7, I should say, to the end of the chapter. And probably that's because since Paul hadn't visited here, he didn't just want to come down on them with um, his corrective to their errors, but he wanted to do it in a personal kind of framework. Now, with that as an overview, I want to make three observations before we just look at verses 1 and 2. The first one is this. Paul did not write Colossians as a theological treatise to be analyzed by by scholars. He wrote this as a pastoral letter to be read and understood by these common small-town people 
um, and they were relatively young in their Christian faith. Probably the most mature Christian in their midst was maybe five years old in the faith, and they were coming out of a, a Gentile, a pagan background, and uh, so the Holy Spirit directed Paul to write these somewhat profound truths about Jesus Christ to these readers. Probably many of them couldn't even read. They had to listen to this letter being read and maybe say, would you read that part again? And they heard it, and Paul expected them to understand it. And so as we get into it, it's not so deep that you can't grab it and understand it through the Spirit's help and apply it to your own life. I fear that many of us American Christians are just a bit too shallow in that we steer away from theology. And, you know, it's... uh, You look at the books in Christian bookstores, it's kind of dismal. There's a lot of shallow self-help books. There are books that tell the testimony of some baseball or football or basketball hero who makes a profession of faith. But works on theology aren't out there to greet you as you walk in the door, you know. Uh, And I would just encourage you to go deeper. There's some great books out on the book table that will help you to do that and get a grounding in sound doctrine. A second thing to observe here is that sound or right theology is the basis for right living. We tend to avoid theology, I think, because we think it's either difficult or boring. And if a preacher starts talking about theology, our eyes kind of glaze over and We think, I wish you'd get to the good stuff, the practical stuff. I mean, I'm dealing with issues in my marriage. I'm facing hard things at work. And here he is talking about all this impractical theology. Uh, I think that is an error. Uh, Paul wanted these small town folks to know that what we believe about Jesus Christ is not irrelevant to life. It is directly applicable to life. And we'll see In chapter 3, it affects our morals. It affects our relationships in the church, our relationships in the home, our relationships on our jobs, and our relationships with people in the world. All of that in chapters 3 and 4. And so, false teaching never leads to true godliness. Sound doctrine always does. And as you probably know, many of Paul's letters start with doctrine, Romans chapters 1 through 11, Ephesians 1 through 3, and then he applies it in the latter half of the letter. A third observation here, then, is that the test of solid theology can be summed up by answering the question, where does it put Jesus Christ? Does he merely have a place in it, or is he central and supreme? Is he presented as fully God and fully man in one person, or is either side of that slighted? Almost all church heresies go off on one end or the other of the person and work of Christ. Is his sacrificial death on the cross presented as the substitute for our sins, sufficient for all of life and godliness, 
Or do we need to add all the latest insights that are coming into the church from the world in order to live a godly life? I think some of you know the story, but years ago, when I was in California, I was wrestling with whether to allow some small groups in our church to use a couple of books that they wanted to use that they claimed really helped hurting people. One of them was called The Twelve Steps for Christians, and on the cover of the book, it claims that it is based on biblical teachings. Uh, The other book was called When Your World Makes No Sense by psychologist Henry Cloud. It has since been republished as Changes That Heal. But in that book, Cloud said that he can help emotionally hurting people with these insights that he claimed traditional biblical teaching lacked. Well, when I read that statement in Cloud, I had some nagging uneasiness with the book, and I I couldn't quite figure out, though. It took me quite a few months as I wrestled through it and a number of other books trying to figure out, what's the issue here? And then I was reading J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, which is a Christian classic. And he has a chapter called Christ is All, based on Colossians 3.11. And then about the same time, I read a book that had just come out by John MacArthur called Our Sufficiency in Christ. And both of those books brought into focus for me that the problem with the flood of self-help, psychology-oriented books that were flooding into the church were that they all assumed that Christ is not sufficient for the believer, that we need something else that's not in the Word of God. And where are they getting it? Well, they're getting it from the latest insights of a bunch of atheistic psychologists who Tell us, here's how you can have self-esteem. Here's how you can do this and that and the other. And uh, they all really don't lead the reader to exclaim with the psalmist, Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That's a profound statement. Besides you, God, I desire nothing on earth. He adds, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And if we really understand that truth, and we really understand that through his precious promises, he's given us all that is necessary for life and godliness, as Second Peter 1 says, then Why do we need the world's insights into how to live a godly and a successful and a happy life? At that time, too, I just worked through all the fruit of the Spirit. I don't know if you've ever done this, but go through the fruit of the Spirit and contrast each of them. Love with hatred or anger. Joy with depression. Peace with anxiety. And you can go through the list and contrast them And you'll see that they describe an emotionally, relationally whole person. And that's promised to all who walk by means of the Spirit. So the test of solid theology then is, again, it exalts Jesus Christ as supreme. He is Lord over all. 
as sufficient. He is our food. He is our drink. He is everything to us. And that we will see as we work through Colossians. Now, with that as a long overview of the whole book, I want to zero in for the rest of our time on verses 1 and 2. And there we see that God has equipped his church in Christ so that we might be his church in Flagstaff. And I am getting my main point there from verse 2, where in the Greek text there, there are two prominent phrases, in Colossae, in Christ. And I'm taking the liberty of substituting Flagstaff for Colossae. But the point is, when we see how God has equipped us in Christ, then we can be what he wants us to be here in this piece of geography in Flagstaff. So first, let's note how God has equipped his church in Christ. And just three things I'd point out here. And obviously, this is not comprehensive. This is just a little uh, Dear Colossians greeting to open the letter. But first of all, we see that God has given apostles to his church. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That word apostle is just a transliteration of the Greek apostolos, and it means a sent one. Apostello is the Greek verb to send. Uh, It's used in two ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it just referred to a messenger, somebody that a church sent out on on a mission, a special task. Mainly, though, it's used to refer to the 12 apostles of Christ, plus Paul, probably James, the Lord's brother, and it's debatable, but maybe Barnabas as well. But the apostles, in that sense, had to meet certain requirements. They had to have seen the risen Lord. Uh, They had unique authority to perform miracles in a way that most people could not to authenticate the message. They were directly appointed by Christ, and he gave them authority to found the New Testament church. And so Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, probably meaning the Old Testament prophets. As such, the office of apostle passed away when John died toward the end of the first century. He was the last living apostle. And so there is no doctrine uh, or biblical warrant for the doctrine of the Catholic Church of apostolic succession. They see the Pope now having the same authority that the apostles had, but there's no biblical warrant for that. We have their authoritative teaching right here in the New Testament. Paul was not an apostle because one day he took an aptitude test and it said, you know, you're really gifted as an apostle. You ought to pursue that career. Uh, He says he's an apostle here by the will of God. By the will of God. As you know the story, God sovereignly laid his hand on Paul as he was persecuting the church on his way to Damascus to imprison and kill Christians It's ironic that this man, who was such a zealous Jew, would become God's apostle to the Gentiles, whom he formerly despised, showing the radical change in his heart. And although there are no apostles today, I think we can apply this in this way. 
If you know Christ, it's because of the will of God. It's because of the will of God. And it's because, although you're not gifted as an apostle, if you're saved, the, the 1 Corinthians 11, I mean 12, 11 says that the Holy Spirit has given gifts to every member of the body of Christ as he sovereignly wills. And so however you're gifted, it's because of the will of God. And the point is, serving Christ is not optional. You're not a volunteer in the church. You're a conscript. You know, you've been drafted. You guys don't know the draft, but when I was younger, uh, every young man had to either dodge it or get drafted. That was the reality. And uh, <clears throat> you had no choice in the matter. You're it. You're on. And that's how it is with being a servant of Christ. And so God has equipped his church in the first place then with the apostolic witness, the New Testament. And he's, he's um, given us gifted members. A second way God has equipped his church in Christ is that he has set us apart into a family in Christ. Uh, Paul uses all kinds of family terms here. Timothy is not an apostle because he hasn't seen the risen Lord. But Timothy is the brother. And Paul refers to the church as brethren here. And he refers to God as our common father. And uh, God becomes your father through the new birth. When you're born into the family of God, you believe in Jesus Christ and so you share this new life in Christ in common with all your brothers and sisters who have been born again. And, you know, it's one of the most wonderful things for me when I'm traveling, maybe here in town or at the Grand Canyon or it may be overseas, and you meet somebody who's born again, and there's an instant bond of brotherhood between you where you feel closer to that person in a few minutes then you may feel with a family member who is not a believer. That's the bond we share in Christ as brothers and sisters. Uh, families, by their very nature, are set off from the rest of the world. You know, you can crash a party, but you can't crash a family. Uh, to get into a family, there's about three ways, and that's all I know to get in, by birth, by adoption, or by marriage. And... Uh, Apart from that, you're basically an outsider. And that's how we get into the family of God. Either with the new birth, or another analogy is we're adopted into the family of God, or another analogy is we are married to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are distinct from the world because we share that family bond that happens through uh, being born again. Paul underscores our distinction from the world when he calls us saints. In some versions, you might have an NIV that says holy, same idea. Saint means one who is set apart as holy unto God. That's the idea. As you know, again, the Catholic Church elevates some as special super believers. They're the saints. But the Bible, the New Testament says every person who has believed in Jesus Christ is a saint, a set-apart one. God has brought you out of the world, made you distinct from the world, 
set you apart unto Jesus Christ. And so as a people, it says in, the, in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a people for his own possession, distinct, again, from the world. And then Paul refers to the Colossians also as faithful brethren. Now, some commentators say that ought to be translated believing brethren, but to me that's a tautology. All brethren are believing and all believing are brethren. So that would be a useless statement or a superfluous statement. Um, This is the only time in all of Paul's letters that he greets anybody as faithful brethren. And I think he may be alluding to the false teachers that have come in and saying, I'm writing to all in the church in Colossae who haven't bought into the false teaching. All who are faithful to Jesus Christ. And uh, the enemy keeps coming in with false teaching, even in our day, to carry the saints away. And that's, again, why we need to be doctrinally grounded so we can remain faithful when the winds of false doctrine blow. Now, the main way that Paul sets us apart, though, is this phrase that I referred to in the heading as in Christ to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. And that's one of Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ, in him, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses it over and over again. And again, it emphasizes the new birth. When we are born physically, we are born in Adam, Romans 5 says. We all are born fallen because of our identity in Adam. When we are born again, we are placed in Christ. It's a total change. Not no longer in Adam, now in Christ. It's our new position in him. And the the wonderful truth is this. God now views you, if you've trusted Christ, exactly like he views his son. Isn't that amazing? You are in Christ. It's like you're encapsulated in him. And we'll see in Colossians 1.14, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Colossians 2.3, in him... In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.10, in Christ we have been made complete. Um, in Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, in Christ God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. And so we inherit everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. And we are placed in Christ, not Subsequent to salvation, after we do some things, it is all by grace uh, in, in him. To illustrate that, <clears throat> every once in a while you read in the paper a story about somebody finds a message in a bottle on a beach, and somebody put that message in there decades before, and the thing floated around, probably was in typhoons and hurricanes and, and storms and tossed here and there, But the message is safe because it's in the bottle. If they'd just thrown the message off the boat, it would have sunk to the bottom. But it's in the bottle, so when it washes up on the beach, it's intact. Well, you're in Christ. And there are a lot of waves and a lot of storms and a lot of hard things that bounce you around life. But if you're in Christ, you're secure. You're in Him. 
And that is the ultimate security. It's not because of our performance. It's not because we merit it and we are good people and we do this and that and the other to earn it. It's all by grace. It's all in him. In Ephesians 1.21, Paul says that Christ is now at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's just piling up every term he can think of for spiritual powers and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And you're in him, seated right there at the right hand of the Father. What a wonderful, wonderful message that is. And so God has equipped us then by giving us his word through the apostles and gifting every member, maybe not as apostles, but as other spiritual gifts. He's gifted us and given, equipped his church by setting us apart in Christ. And then thirdly, God relates to us in grace and in peace. Paul writes grace to you and peace from God our Father. And if you're like me, when you're reading your Bible, you brush right over those words and go on. Stop and chew on them, though. It's, it's a greeting, but it's more than a greeting. It's a greeting loaded with spiritual truth. Uh, it's a prayer. It's a prayer that we as God's people would experience the fullness of his grace and his peace. And God's grace is very simply his unmerited favor towards us. We deserved his judgment And he piles every blessing in the heavenlies in Christ on us. And uh, he does that not because we earn it, not because we've done anything, not because he foresaw that we would do anything. Ephesians 1, 4 says he does it because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's why he blessed us with every blessing in Christ. And so that is such a motivating and liberating truth. And it's so easy. We'll get into this in chapter two. It's so easy to get under a legalistic pile as a Christian and start, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do this and I've got to do this in order to to earn God's favor. And Paul says, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. And that is the motivation to draw near to our loving Heavenly Father. The term peace, God's peace, comes out of the Old Testament. You know the greeting, shalom, shalom, peace to you. It refers to total well-being, spiritual and physical. But it's both inward and outward. Through Christ, we now have peace with God, according to Romans 5.1. Also, Christ himself is our peace. Uh, Ephesians 2.14 says, so it's peace with God vertically. It's peace with one another in Christ, in our relationships with one another. And furthermore, because God is both sovereign and loving and would never do anything that was not for our good. He works all things together for our good. It means we can have inward peace, even in the middle of difficult trials that we all go through. So in this short opening greeting, Paul then is showing us how God has equipped us as his church in Christ. But lest you think that we're in a little um, insulated capsule away from the world, he also adds another phrase in Colossae. And I'm applying that by saying that God has then equipped us to be his church, not only in Christ, but also in Flagstaff. 
these saints are in Christ. They're also, though, living in this pagan city of Colossae. And here we are in pagan Flagstaff. And so he puts us in Christ, but it's not so we can go off and join monasteries and live apart from the world. He places us in Christ in a pagan city so that we can be salt and light in this city. I think Jesus said it best in John 17, 15 to 18, where he's praying. And he says, Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world in their origin, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. That's why he gave us apostles, to give us the truth. He adds, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And so here you have these people living in this small, relatively insignificant little city of Colossae in central Asia Minor, modern Turkey, and they're the light in the darkness. You ever drive into town and see that sign that says that Flagstaff is the world's first dark sky city? And, uh, you know, that's nice. I love to go out at night and look at the wonderful stars that we can see here. But sometimes I think it's not just the world's dark sky city. It's a world's dark city. You know, there's a lot of evil in this city, as in every pagan city, which is every city around the world. But we're dealing with it here. And we shouldn't run from it. We should penetrate it with light. In every neighborhood, every Christian home should be beaming the light of Christ, the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, for all sinners into our neighborhoods so that people are drawn to the light as they see Christ in our families, in our personal lives. Sad thing is, 30 years after Paul wrote the letter to Colossae and whatever letter he wrote to Laodicea, whether it's Ephesians or some other lost letter, 30 years later, the apostle John wrote to Laodicea. You have it in Revelation chapter 3. And he warned that church that the Lord was about to spew them out of his mouth because they had grown lukewarm. It's a solemn warning there. And their testimony for Christ was flickering dimly. And you look at modern Turkey, and there's faithful people there trying to get the light going again. But for the most part, the light is extinguished in Turkey. Jesus said this in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. You say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Well, he is, but he's in us. And so we are the light of the world. And then he went on in verse 16 and said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's our mandate to be in Christ, to be in Flagstaff, that the world would see Jesus in us and drawn to him so that they too would glorify him as their Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the wonderful, wonderful blessings you give us in Christ. We will spend eternity exploring the depths and the 
the breadth, the height, the length of your love and your grace and all that you've bestowed on us. And you've placed us here in this city for a reason. You've gifted every one of your members. You've called us to be a called out people and yet one that would, while being distinct, would be in the world, yet not of it. And I pray that would be true of our church and that in the coming year we would see many drawn to the Savior through the witness of the members of this body. And so I ask, Lord, if there are any here who do not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they would see that they are outside. They are not members of the family of God yet, but that you're calling them, you're inviting them to put their trust in Jesus and to experience the joy of eternal life as a gift freely given and that they would do so. I would ask, Lord, that if any of us as your members are lukewarm or getting blended in with the world and not distinct, that you would call us out of that, that we would see our exalted position in Christ and live as people seated at your right hand as we go through our daily chores and responsibilities and that your light would shine through us to this city. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.